and turn to the book of Hosea. Might take you a little while. You probably haven't gotten there in a while. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible with you, you can always just use what's on the screen. But starting a series today in the Minor Prophets. Thought about calling it Summer in the Minors, uh, but uh, many of you are not even baseball fans, so we're not going to do that. So we're just going to say major messages from the Minor Prophets. So who were the prophets? In the Old Testament, uh, God, they had uh, the Jewish folks would say, uh, the Jewish tradition where you had the former prophets and you had the latter prophets. Former prophets were your um, uh, Isaiah, or, sorry, uh, get to my notes here, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and the Kings. And then the latter prophets would be what is what we would break up as the major and the minor prophets, the major prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah. Well, there are 12 minor prophets. In fact, so when you put the former and the latter together, the, the Jewish Bible would call that the Nevi'im, uh, which is the prophets together. Well, what was a prophet's job? A prophet's job wasn't to just tell a story, wasn't to just uh, the, the chronology of things or, or ge- uh, the uh, generations of everything. They were to say, this is what God says. And there were oracles and there were judgments and, and lots of things that we could tackle. And if you notice that we really do try to, to blend, like not spending all of our time in the New Testament, but also going back and building the foundation of the Old Testament. And so for the next 12 weeks, we're going to look at the 12 minor prophets. And the reason we're going to do that is because more than, than ever, one of the things they do is they declare this is who God is. As God says to his people, the Israelites, and the people from Judah, and we'll talk about the differences there, he's saying, this is, this is where you messed up, and this is where there's going to be judgment, but here's where there's hope, and here's what's going to happen someday, and so we're going to tackle this together. So the way this is going to work, though, is if you put all 12 of those together, I think it's roughly 67, 68 chapters. We're not going to tackle all of those in 12 weeks. So you've got to help me. So on Sunday mornings, we come in. We're going to start today in Hosea. And we'll go to Joel and Amos and Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Or if you're the Italian, it's Malachi. You could call it that way. But um, those 12 minor prophets, uh, we're going to each week, we're going to watch a short video, five to seven minute video from the Bible Project folks just a super helpful overview, so that I want you to walk away with an overview, then we're gonna take just a little bit to get maybe two-thirds of a sermon today, and we're gonna just look at part of the book together, and it's gonna vary from week to week. But I'm gonna encourage you to, to leave here, maybe today, tomorrow, throughout this week, is spend some time reading through Hosea, and then next week, spend some time reading through Joel and just saying, God, what do you want me to hear from this? What do you, how do you want me to know, what do you want me to know more about you? Because there's going to be promises of hope, judgment of sin, future restoration, God being sovereign, and the end times that a lot of that is going to be all in that together. So let's take a few moments. Let me show you this video, and then I'll come back up and walk you through uh, just two chapters today. The book of the prophet Hosea. Hosea lived in the northern kingdom of Israel, which he sometimes calls Ephraim or Jacob, about 200 years after they had broken off from southern Judah. Remember the story from 1 Kings. 
Hosea was called to speak on God's behalf during the reign of one of Israel's worst kings, Jeroboam II. The nation was descending into chaos, and in the year 722, the big bad Assyrian Empire swooped in and decimated Israel. Again, see the story in 2 Kings. And Hosea had seen all of this coming. The book is a collection of some 25 years of his preaching and writing. It's almost all poetry. And this whole collection has been designed to have three main sections. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it works. The opening part tells the story of Hosea's broken marriage to a woman named Gomer who commits adultery. Now, it's not totally clear whether Gomer slept around with other men before or only after they got married, but they did have three children together and things fell apart. The important point is that God tells Hosea that despite Gomer's unfaithfulness, he is to go find her, to pay off her debts to her lovers, and to commit his love and faithfulness to her once again. And then God says that all of this, the broken and repaired marriage, the children, it's all a prophetic symbol telling the story of God's relationship to Israel. So God has been like a faithful husband to Israel. He rescued them out of slavery. He brought them to Mount Sinai, where he entered into a covenant with them. He asked them to be faithful to him alone. But then he brought Israel into the promised land and they took all the abundance that he gave them and they dedicated it to the worship of the Canaanite god Baal. And so God has a legitimate reason. He could end the covenant and divorce Israel and he thinks about doing so but instead he says that he's going to pursue Israel again and renew his covenant with them. And he says why? It's purely because of his own love, compassion, and faithfulness. Hosea then spells out what all this means. He says the consequences for Israel's rebellion will be imminent defeat by other nations and exile. But there's hope for future restoration. One day Israel will once again repent and come back to worship their God. And Hosea says, he will place over them a new messianic king from the line of David who will bring God's blessing. And so this opening section introduces all the main ideas of the book. Israel has rebelled, and God's going to bring severe consequences, but God's own covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. And so in the remaining sections of the book, Hosea's poetry explores these themes in more depth. So there are two collections of his accusations and warnings for Israel, and then each of these is concluded by a very hopeful poem about God's mercy and hope for the future. So chapters 4 through 10, Hosea explores the causes and effects of Israel's unfaithfulness. He says numerous times that Israel lacks all knowledge or understanding of God. The Hebrew word to know, which is yada, it's more than just intellectual activity. It describes personal relational knowledge. It's the difference between just knowing about someone and then actually knowing that someone. And God wants Israel to know him like that in a relationship. He wants them to experience his love for them and become the kind of knowledge that transforms their hearts and lives so that they love him in return. And so this is why Hosea is constantly exposing the hypocrisy of Israel's worship. He constantly shows how they're breaking the Ten Commandments, how they're allowing grave injustice in their communities, and then they go to their sacred temples and they offer sacrifices to God like everything is just fine. But it's not fine. And not only because of their hypocrisy, but because they're worshiping all of these other gods too. He, he mentions many times their altars to Baal at the cities of Bethel and Gilgal. 
And not only have they given their allegiance to other gods, Hosea repeatedly accuses Israel for trusting in their political alliances with Egypt and Assyria. So instead of trusting God to protect them, they want to become like these nations and rely solely on military power. And God says it's all going to come crashing down on their heads because in not too long, Assyria will turn on them and come to ravage their lands. In this other section of warning, Hosea gives an ancient Israelite history lesson to show how this family's been unfaithful from the beginning. So he alludes to the patriarch Jacob's lying and treachery. Remember Genesis 27 and 28. He alludes to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. Remember the book of Numbers. He alludes to their appointment of the corrupt king Saul who led the people into sin and disaster. Remember the stories in 1 Samuel. This is all Hosea's way of saying some things in this family family never change. So what hope does Hosea have? Well, we know from chapter 3 that God's going to do something to save and restore his people, and that's what these two concluding chapters explore. Chapter 11 is beautiful. The poem depicts God as a loving father who raised his son Israel and then shared everything with him. But the son grew up and rebelled and turned on the father, taking advantage of his generosity. And so in this poem, God is emotionally torn apart. One moment he's angry, and naturally he says he's going to bring severe consequences, but the next moment he's heartbroken. And then he says that he's moved by his mercy and compassion, and he's going to forgive the son that he loves. He says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? My heart churns inside of me. All my compassion is aroused. And so while God did allow Israel to be conquered by Assyria, face the consequences, that's not God's final word. There's still hope. And that's what the last chapter is about. Hosea calls Israel to repent and turn back to their God, but he knows that it won't last because it never has before. And God says that one day he will heal their waywardness and love them freely. God goes on to describe this new healed Israel as a lush tree that will grow deep roots and broad branches and offer shade and fruit to all of the nations. It's an image of God's promise to Abraham, how Israel was to become a blessing to the nations. And God saying if that's ever going to happen, it's going to require an act of God's grace and healing power to repair the deep brokenness and sinful selfishness of the human heart so that God's people can receive his love and love him in return. This is what God promises to do. Now, after this poem concludes, we find the very last words of the book. They're like an appended note. They're likely from the author who collected Hosea's poetry and now wants to speak to you, the reader, for a second. And he says, who is wise and discerning to understand all of this? In other words, Hosea's poems. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. So the author wants you to know that Hosea's ancient poetry to northern Israel is not locked in the past. It reveals deep truths about God's character and purposes and human nature. And while God should and does bring his justice on human evil, his ultimate purpose, his heart, is to heal and to save his people. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about. So the teacher in me wants to give you a test every week on the video, but I won't do that if you don't want me to. So I um, do encourage you, though, to go take advantage of 
a number of those videos. You go to thebibleproject.com, and there's a ton of just really helpful uh, overview videos, and so uh, we're going to use that each week. Uh, those of you that are doing our Bible reading plan will recognize uh, <clears throat> a lot of those as well. So chapters 1 to 3 are the story of Hosea and Gomer. It's not a real nice love story. Uh, Gomer is um, an unfaithful wife. And uh, what I encourage you is you go read that, and the names of their three children will give you some big cues, give us some cues about God's love and care for uh, a rebellious people. So we're not going to tackle that today. What we're going to do is, uh, in 4 to 10, are those accusations and warnings, primarily to Israel. And then there's this beautiful chapter in 11 that we're going to look at 11, And then 12 and 13 are more warnings and accusations against Judah, and then that chapter 14 we're going to look at together. So let me remind you that after David and then Solomon, somewhere shortly after there, the whole nation of Israel split into the 10 northern tribes, they called that Israel, and then the two southern tribes were, were what they called Judah. The reason that becomes important is because this is being written just shortly before Assyria, up in the northeast, comes down and conquers the 10 northern tribes of Israel in about 722 BC, never to be restored again. That was a challenge because then in Judah, they were conquered by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And the reason they're being conquered is because they rebelled and they sinned against God, and they broke their covenant. And what I want to do today is just walk you through chapter 11. A couple months ago, I asked uh, Mike Mills, who is the ministry director over our worship team and our band, and I asked him if he would have the worship team read this book. And so a good number of them did. It's called Rhythms of Grace by Mike Cospers, the uh, author. It says, How the Churches Worship tells the story of the gospel. And one of the chapters in there is just simply called Worship 1, 2, 3. And he says in one, there's one object of worship, one author of worship, there's two contexts of worship, and there's three audiences of worship. The three audiences are God's an audience, so when we worship together, God is one of our audience, but also each other being in the church is um, an audience, but then also the unbelieving world is watching us worship as well. So those are the three audiences. The two contexts of worship is that worship does happen when we're gathered, but then worship also happens when we're scattered in our individual lives and in our homes, and, and worship happens there as well. But what I want to draw your attention to is that when he says worship one, two, three, the one, and that is the fact that the object of worship is God himself. We, we don't worship the building. We don't worship the pastor. We don't worship the band. We don't worship all those things. In fact, we don't even worship scripture. And, and I want to just remind you and I that you know, we, we worship God, and we need to, to hang on to that. So the last three weeks, we've walked through this series, How Should We Then Live? It's got this sinful, broken, fallen world. And we said, the gospel's something we got to hang on to from Romans 1, Romans 3. And then from 2 Timothy 3, we talked about how scripture itself, we've got to hang on to that. And then last week in uh, Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit guides us. So uh, the gospel and scripture and the Holy Spirit, well, Every single week we get together, 
we need to be reminded that, that we've got a great big God. Because it's so easy to take our attention off of him and just look at everything else. And I think that's what the minor prophets are going to do. It's like, hey, everybody, let, let's look at who God is. And so what I'm done today is I want to walk you through chapter 11. We'll finish in chapter 14. But uh, uh, you'll notice in your notes I've given you 11 points. I, that may be a record. I don't know. I think 10 might be the most. But because it's chapter 11 and there's 11 verses we're going to look at, you might as well have 11 points. So um, we'll jump into that. But you're, you're just going to see, hopefully, God through this. So let me read for you the 11 verses all together because this is a poem. Now, now mind you, um, I'm not a poem guy. I'm not a, I'm not a music guy. In fact, yesterday, Malia and I ran a bunch of errands in the afternoon and it took everything in me. I wanted to listen to a sermon or a podcast or like something like not music. She took over and plugged her phone in, and we had to listen. We got to we we listened to music the whole time, and so uh, I I put up with it. But so so I'm gonna be so before we chop it up in the American way and put notes to it, let's just hear it as a poem, okay? So so hear this because I think by reading these eleven verses all at once, you get a better feel for it. So eleven chapter one, he says, when Israel was a child. I loved him. This is God speaking. When Israel, my people, was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. But Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man and the Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return to their homes, declares the Lord. What I want to do now is just kind of break it down. And I've just given you 11 statements or 11 verbs 
that God does. And we won't spend very long on each one, but I just want you walking away. Which one does the Holy Spirit want you to hear this morning? And we begin with this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. God loves. God loves. God loves his people. The world wants you and I to think differently about that. The world thinks very differently. You don't have a loving God. And you and I are faced with the decision whether or not we're gonna believe scripture or not because scripture teaches that God is a loving God. And some of you need to hear this morning and be reminded that God loves you. But we go back to verse one. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. Remember the story? He calls Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. He changes Jacob's name to Israel, and his 12 sons, and one of them, uh, Joseph, is taken off into slavery in Egypt, and eventually the whole family ends up there, and eventually then the Pharaoh forgets them, and they're in slavery and bondage, and God calls Moses and says, hey, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and, and that was then the exodus out of Egypt and into eventually the wilderness and into the promised land. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So let's be reminded this morning that God does rescue. God rescues his people. He redeems the people that he loves. He calls them out of slavery, which is a beautiful picture of how he calls you and I out of bondage to sin and slavery to sin. And what I find most interesting and most discouraging is the next verse reminds us that too often we along with the Israelites, respond to his rescue with rebellion. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals, the Baals, different ways to pronounce it, and burning offerings to idols. How often do we, we're, we're rescued from our sin, God offers us salvation, and then we turn around and worship the idols of our day. We, we burn offerings to them instead of to God. Yet, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. That's a, the word Ephraim is a, a, a city, and so you would hear Israel and Jacob and Ephraim, all this, he's referring to the same people. He says, I took them up by their arms. Picture that toddler. You're just teaching them how to walk and helping them along. That's what God did. In fact, that reminds us that God instructs. God teaches. God is a God who shows his people how to be in a relationship with him. That's why as he brought them out of Egypt, he established with them a covenant. He said, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, there's gonna be some consequences. Here's how you interact with me. Here's, I wanna guide you to the best life possible, and this is what it looks like. In fact, that's what he does for us today by just giving us his holy word. He instructs us, but how often do we reject that instruction? But God does instruct. And then he says, in the end of verse two, or three, I'm sorry, uh, in fact, let's start at the beginning of three. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Let's be reminded that God heals. When there is hurt 
and pain. God is a God who heals. He wants to make things right. He knows when it hurts. He's a good doctor. He is the great physician. God wants to make things right. But then he describes this, and there, we know that there's a metaphor change here because I don't think he's using cords and bands with a toddler. Okay, we've now moved to more of an, uh, there's a calf probably in the picture of a, a small animal. He says, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. Let's be reminded that God leads. God guides his people with cords of kindness, bands of love. He's easing their yoke. It's, it's not a whip. It's not a yanking. There's gentleness there. In fact, it reminds us of the book that many of us just read where Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly. He leads us. David describes this of God the Father, the Lord is my shepherd, he leads me beside still waters. God wants to continue to lead us today through his Holy Spirit to show us the way. Are we following? We talked last week in Galatians 5 how we, we keep in step with the Spirit because the Spirit is leading us. Then he says, and I bent down to them and fed them. Just picture that, like just, just reaching down and, and feeding them. My stupid dogs, every time, they, they think just by going to the bathroom outside, they're supposed to get a treat. I mean, that's just like, they come inside and go right to the door, and so to the, to the cabinet door, okay, good job, and you give them a treat. That's just, they, they expect that. Well, most of the time, that's like us, like, like give me, give me, give me, give me, give me the treat. Well, God's just taking care of us that's a picture of his provision. God provides for us. God's given us everything that we need for life and for godliness. God doesn't say, eh, just, you guys just go on your way. You guys figure it out. No, he, he takes care of us. But think about this. Um, he knows what's best for us, and he gives us what's best for us. He gives us that correct ratio of our micro or macronutrients, uh, the right carbs and proteins and fat as he feeds us. But I think too often, we let the world feed us. And so God's got the good stuff, but we choose to eat the junk food of the world. God feeds. But here's where it gets difficult. Those are, those are the first, however many we're on, those are all nice. Like, yeah, let's just... Happy, it makes us feel good. Next one, not so much, because look at verse five. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, which initially, like, yes, we're not going back to slavery, but no, instead, Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. God brought them out of slavery and they still rebelled against him. He says, okay, Assyria's gonna come and take over because you've refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates. You know, the, your, your defense isn't going to work and devour them because of their own counsels. They think they, they're, they're wise and they're not. My people are bent on turning from me and though they call out to the Most High, 
he shall not raise them up at all. Do, do you feel this back and forth? God loves and rescues and instructs and heals and leads and provides, but also he has to judge. God is a God who judges. He's a holy God. And God has given clear expectations to his people back then. He gives us clear expectations today. And over and over again, they rejected him. They said, we're going to do it our way. In fact, we're, we're going to go trust the other nations and have a relationship with them. And so there's this uh, over and over again in Hosea talks about that they became like whores. And God had to respond out of his holiness to judge them. He gave them over. In fact, I was, as Daryl was praying today, re- referencing Romans 1, he gave them over in the Old Testament. He gives them over in the New Testament. First to Assyria, 722, and Babylon, 586. You obey me, I will bless you. You disobey me, and I will curse you. But it doesn't stay there. Watch what he does in verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How, how can I hand you over, O Israel? How, how can I make you like Adma? And how can I treat you like Zebaim? These were cities that were conquered. How, how can I watch that happen? My, my heart recoils within me. My, my compassion, it grows warm and tender. I really struggled with what verb to put with this one. Because there, there's multiple things happening and multiple verbs. And, and I realize that let, let's just pull it together and just call it this. God feels. Because sometimes we just think of God as this just like a psychopathic God that doesn't have feelings. No, he, he has feelings. He, he created his people in a relationship. And, and there are times when our sin and brokenness affects him. Now, this is what we would call anthropomorphic, where we're taking man's, uh, we're, we're, we're describing God in human terms. And in one sense, God is struggling emotionally here. There, there's a tension between his holiness and his love, between his judgment and his mercy. Now, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand how that works. Like, when you take those characteristics of God and, and how they fit together, I, I got to put them in the mystery box. I, I can't figure out what's going on. I mean, I've got a lot of people around me. I don't know what's going on in their hearts. I don't even know fully what's going on in my heart. How can I know what's going on in God's heart? That goes in the mystery box. But I do know this. God cares. And, and God feels angst over the sin and the rebellion of his people. He's like, why do you guys do this? I don't, I don't want to have to punish you. And then he responds this way in verse 9. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. And this reminds us that God forgives. God not just judges, but he forgives. And I'm glad that, that he's sovereign enough and wise enough and he can sort out that tension between when to judge and when to forgive. You know, I'll be honest, as a parent, we, we don't know when to, when, when do you get tough and when do you get tender? Like, I want to beat you, kid. Well, here's a $20 bill. You know, like, you just, it, 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 that can happen within moments at times, you know. I'll never forget Elijah one time. 
I just wanted to bet. He, he did something really serious. And I remember sitting down with him, and uh, I bought him a watch. And I, I gave it to him. He's like, you could just see the total confused look on his face. And he says, you deserve so much different, but I'm going to give you a gift. Because I want that gift to be a reminder of grace. And then this last week after he left for Colorado, I was cleaning out all his stuff. I'm like, well, I found that watch in his stuff. He forgot about it. So I need to remind him of my grace in his life. But uh, that's a whole nother conversation. So as he texts me and says, can you send me some more money on Apple Pay? Yeah, so, okay. God is a forgiving God, full of grace and mercy. Verse 10, love this. In fact, we sang about this this morning. They shall go after the Lord and he will what? Roar like a lion. When he roars, his children come trembling from the west. God roars. It's a picture of his power, his greatness, his, his mighty. Great is thy faithfulness. God's not a wimp. He's not dead. He's fully alive. He's roaring. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will what? What's that word there? Return them to their homes, declares the Lord. The last one, God restores. God doesn't just forgive. He's like, I, I want to make everything right again. Tell you what, this is the one that, that I, I needed to hear this morning. Because as I just look out and what's going on in this sinful, broken, fallen world, I get really discouraged. I'm like, God, when are you going to fix stuff? This last week, we had like uber drama in our development over the swimming pool. We had a bunch of disrespectful teens and a bunch of Karens, and they don't mix together very well. The cops were called four or five times. The pool's been shut down all week, and they're making new rules and new security, and certain families, namely the Grahams, have been kicked out of the pool for a while and, and guilty by association. It's just a mess. And I thought, you know what? As I read through the Facebook stuff, I got on, I got on Amanda's account and read the Facebook stuff. I didn't reopen my account. And just watching, just... I'm like, God, will you please come back? Like, this, like how, how is this fixed? And it reminded me of, of 2 Timothy 3, because in the last days there will be people who do this, this, and this, and this, and this. It's right there on Facebook. God's going to make everything right again. I think we do get little snippets of restoration here where we say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and we see good things happening. We need to keep our, our, our hope, uh, be, be reminded that, yes, there's good things now, but someday it's all going to be fixed. You're going to hear this phrase next weekend and multiple times throughout the uh, Minor Prophets called the Day of the Lord. The day, in the Day of the Lord, this is going to happen. In the Day of the Lord, that's going to happen. And the Day of the Lord was, was started in these Old Testament times and prophets, but it, it's more fulfilled in the church and then ultimately going to be fully fulfilled someday. And we look forward to that. In fact, we get a little glimpse of that in chapter 14. Turn over to chapter 14 and verse 4. 
He says, and this is all I, I will, I will heal their apostasy. I'm gonna, they're just, they don't believe the right things at all. I'm gonna, I'm gonna heal them of that. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from them. This is, this is part of that restoration. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. You know, when dew comes, it, it brings water to everything and, and refreshes, and it helps the flowers blossom. He shall, t- he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Lebanon was known for great big cedar trees that the roots go way down. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They were known for just beautiful flowers as well. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow and they shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. God's gonna restore everything someday. And you and I need to have hope in that. When we get discouraged, God is a God who restores. So what's our response to that as we close? Let me just give you two R's. These aren't in your notes and they're not on the screen, but I encourage you to think about them. When we, when we look at this is who God is, we respond in two ways. First of all, repentance. Repent. If we go to chapter 14, verse 1, He says to Israel, return. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Return, O gateway, to the Lord your God. Return, O put your name in there. Because there's days we need to return to the Lord our God. For we have stumbled because of our iniquity. He says, take with, you the word, take with you words and return to the Lord. So, so you're taking words to the Lord and say to him, take away all iniquity. We, we confess it. Please just take, take that sin away. Accept what is good. Now we know there's no good in us and it's the good of Jesus, but we'll get to that in a moment. Accept what is good and we will pay with bulls and, and the sacrifice and, and the vows of our lips. That's, that's oaths and promises. Now we again, we know that, that we can't do any of that because guess what? Jesus already took care of it. But there is this confession. Uh, Assyria is not gonna save us. Remember what they did over and over again? Instead of turning to God, they would turn to their neighbors and say, take care of us. Well, Assyria's not gonna be able to do that. In fact, Assyria conquers you. We, we will not ride on horses. Remember over and over, and over again, they'd say, you trust in horses and chariots instead of the name of the Lord. But then this is my favorite part. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. This is for all the Americans because we think that we can fix it with our actions. We can fix all of life, both spiritually, emotionally, physically, with what we can do. No, 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 there's a confession to say, you know, I, I can't do that. God, it's, it's the work of your hands. I love this last phrase, in you, the orphan finds mercy. We actually sang about that, the orphan heart this morning. We didn't even plan that out when Bill picked the songs. The other word 
Yes, it's, it's repent. We return to you. We can't save ourselves. But the other R is remember. And that points us to Jesus because on this side of the cross, we remember that all of those verbs, that we, those 11 verbs that we just looked at, are centered in Jesus. God loved us so much that he sent us Jesus. He rescues us through Jesus. He instructs us through the words of Jesus. He heals us through Jesus. He leads us through Jesus. He provides for us through Jesus. He brings judgment through Jesus. Remember, there's going to be a day he's going to come back. The next time he's coming back with a sword, he's coming back to, to rule and conquer. He feels. Jesus wept. He forgives us through what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus is the roaring lion, and he restores everything. Restoration is only possible through Jesus Christ. So let's finish today by gathering at the table and remembering what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to um, invite you to the table and take the elements with you back to your seats, and then in a moment I'll have us all stand and, and pray, and then uh, we'll take communion, and then we'll sing a song together. So worship team, why don't you come on up, and let me pray, and then you come forward and receive the elements. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Um, the prophets, the mouthpieces uh, of your word, what you wanted to say to your people back then. And I pray as we journey through these minor prophets together this summer, that we will be blessed and encouraged, but also challenged as we look at that, that covenant relationship you had with your people. Today we're reminded that your people broke that covenant and that hurt you. But you still showed grace and mercy along with your holy judgment. Bless us. Encourage us. Thank you for what Jesus Christ did on the cross that allows us to be in a relationship with you. And if there's, there's anyone here in this room today who's, who is not committed to following you as Lord and Savior, would your Holy Spirit just reach into their heart and, and remind them that they need you and may we have an opportunity to connect them to Jesus. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Come.